Hello, and thank you for joining us at Cathedral Conversations About Race. My name is Michael Pereira, and I am here with Kara Peterson. Hey, Kara. Hello. And today we are very, very so happy to be joined by our guest, Vin Doe. Vin is someone we've been looking forward to talking to for a long time. Uh, he's been a longtime member of the cathedral and he's served in so many ways. And today we are going to sit down and talk with Vin about how all this got started for him and where he finds himself at the cathedral now. So Vin Doe, thank you for joining us at Cathedral Conversations About Race. Wow, how fun. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Kara. Ben, we've been waiting to talk to you for a very long time. You've been so deeply involved in the life of St. Mark's, but take this all the way back to the beginning. How did this journey to St. Mark's start for you? Um, it started in 1975 when my family was adopted. Uh, adopted, is that the right word? Uh, hosted by St. Mark's when we were leaving Vietnam and uh, we were a Catholic family then. And so since then I became Episcopalian. That's another story. Um, and uh, mom and dad since got divorced and we've kind of moved to different places. I moved to New York, came back. While I was in New York, I became Episcopalian. I decided that, um, well, another story. It was good to be, be Episcopalian. So um, I came back and looked for a church and I found out that, you know, I looked at St. Mark's, I thought it wouldn't be convenient to come back to St. Mark's. But before I thought I did it for a convenience reason, I did come by and shop St. Mark's, right? I attended a couple of times and I wanted to get the sense if this church is for me. And at that time, I did get the sense it was for me. And I still do. And um, uh, yeah, I still do. And so fast forward to the to the present, here I to the present. Here I am, um, many decades later, after having been hosted by St. Mark's as a young young person. Vin, I forget honestly when I first met you, but I think the only time we really got to know each other was after I joined the vestry. And for, there was, I think, a brief overlap period where Kara, Vin, and myself were on the vestry together. Right. And I may be slightly misremembering that timeline, but yeah. what? drew you to church governance? What drew you to that leadership? That's a good question, Michael. I wanted to see more people of color on the leadership. You know, the one thing that is nice about the Episcopal Church, having come from the Catholic Church, is that there are women in the leadership, right? There are more than not people of color. <sighs> As I say that, I realize that both churches, Catholic and Episcopalian, are global churches, and there are other heads who are people of color. When I look at the Vatican, the Catholic side of things, I see Western faces. And when I see the Anglican Communion, I see more people of color. Having said that, I still see the predominance of, um, of, of those who are white in the leadership. And so I wanted to be a part of bringing that in my representation, in my wholeness to the vestry. And I thought I had some skills to give and, 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 and I thought I could represent a certain demographic uh, that was younger, that was single, that was, you know, a, you know, working class kind of thing, you know? It was an interesting time because the three of us were the only 
people of color on the vestry for that overlap, huh? Right, and I think during that time when we were on board, there was a, a there was a, a turnaround. It was a movement towards more to vote more in people of color by the the church. I think we were probably at the beginning of that. Mm. That's really interesting, because not to maybe not to make an assumption, but that must have been a very very rare time in the history of. St. Mark's Parish and Cathedral, that there were that many people of color on the vestry at the same time. And I say that without a lot of understanding of the history, but just knowing our demographics, knowing our knowing our history, I do not imagine that there could have been that many people of color serving on the vestry simultaneously. This is just personal memory, but I remember Roland was on there and yeah. he's black, but, but I don't recall... And I don't recall very many other faces. I don't recall the vestry having three people of color on its yeah, roster at that time. Yeah. Before or since. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. You were there before I was, Kara. Oh, we were elected in the same year. We were in the same class. I think you were there at St. Mark's before I was, I believe. Oh, oh yeah. I mean as a member, I'm sure. Yeah. As yeah. a member, yes, but <laughs> As you said, you wanted to show, you wanted to bring that representation, that diversity to the leadership, which credit to the Episcopal Church, I think, is is more equitable than some other denominations we can think of. But at the same time, struggles in many, many other ways. Were there moments you recall of being the only person of color, either at the vestry or in a ministry meeting or some kind of leadership meeting where you looked around and you were the only non-white person there. Um, I wasn't conscious of it, but when we met as a whole, I was conscious of it. And the reason why that is, is because uh, our Dean Steve has a very strong, uh, has a very strong presence in our meeting. And so in my own, understanding of who I was and my own awareness of my difference. Um, I saw Steve and I can say this, you know, as the white man that he was and a certain kind of a leadership that we voted him, voted in, voted him in for, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I both noticed his strong leadership template and I was conscious of my own. And so and I also saw that in the lens of my own race too. Um, and I wanted to do what I can to, to bring other, other perspectives to that table. Um, and I tried to make it, a, you know, a, 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 a voice of, a non-white person, you know, and try to be speaking in the eye at the same time, you know? I think what's difficult, what I'm trying to do with these questions and this interview is I'm trying to speak from the first person. Hmm. And even within the first person, I have evolved from when I first joined at St. Mark's to when I, where I am now. Lots of things have happened in, I believe, the seven years. My own racial consciousness um, 
and my own desire to, 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 to not only talk about commonalities, but talk about the important differences that, do, that does divide us, right? In our quest to live in harmony, there isn't the capacity to recognize and acknowledge the differences that are important to acknowledge. That, 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 that separates us into different narratives and, and yet that needs to be called, it needs to be recognized in its multiplicity so that we can all live and coexist. And we don't coexist by wiping out other narratives and we don't coexist by having, by, by subscribing to only one main narrative, right? We have to, we have to recognize there are many narratives and somehow make a fabric, make, make, make sense of that. There's, there's something to be said to listening in a very discerning way about different human experiences. Going to the grocery store for you or I is different this year than it is for Steve, any of the other like white parishioners, like there's the extra levels that we live with and that becomes part of our personality and part of our autonomy as a person and just learning how to deal with those, those, those different things every day and having to fold in different power dynamics. Yes. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Agreed. Agreed. And Ben, I, I so deeply appreciate what you just said about how it is important to acknowledge these differences and to, to make these narratives coexist. That is 100% what we're trying to do with these podcasts, with these interviews, is to introduce narratives that would otherwise not be at the tables where decisions about our community life are being made. You, myself, and Kara, we've all, I think, been a little bit privileged to serve on the vestry. Right. There have been so many people of color at St. Mark's who have not, for whatever reason. I'm not, you know, right. this is not about judging that decision not to stand for nomination. But nonetheless, their voices are a part of our community, and those voices need to be heard if we are going to be a community down the road. Certainly, whether you were bringing that representation to the vestry or you're bringing your experience here in this interview, uh, we are so grateful to you for doing that and for right. making our community better because of your presence on the vestry and in everything else that you did and right. your presence here in this conversation as well. And your presence, Michael, and your presence, Kara. And also, we want to acknowledge, and we, I acknowledge that we were voted in by the parishioners, right? And so they did a good thing. So they, you know, so let's acknowledge that as well. Kara said she has to step away just for a second. So. Oh, that was a while ago. I'm back. No, my, um, this, a, a little, of all things, my, my new uh, kimono under undergarments and, and stuff arrived from Japan, so I'm excited. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Kara talks so much about her kimono. 
in one of our first episodes. And so I'm really, uh, when we're done here, I'm really looking forward to seeing what that looks like. I think she mentioned underpants, Michael. So I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. I will put the thing on over the, the undergarment. <laughs> don't worry. That's why we're also, just keeping I, this audio only. I don't mind this going in. I want the, the kimono gets permeated through all of the episodes. <laughs> this whole series is just, where, is just a sell for Kara's kimono, really. This whole series is about us being ourselves. That in a space, in a way that sometimes other people who are people of color who are non-white can allow other non-people. Who, in a way, in, this space is about us being ourselves. It, and in a way that other BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color, not everybody understands that term, right? In a way that BIPOC people allow other BIPOC people to have that space. If there's a special kind of rendition to that, right? Then mm -hmm. us carving out a space and given space by white folks. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what this is about. There's, uh, there's, a, there's a kind of, you know, I know we're a large, large, grouping and we're not even a monolith even within our own Asian-ness, even within my own Vietnamese-ness. And yet, and yet there's an affinity there when we, t when we are among our own, even among, I don't know how white people are among themselves. I mean, they know they recognize their own narrative, right? But when people come among themselves, somehow we recognize that, hey, we are, we see ourselves. Hey, I see Michael, you're uh, formerly from, you know, uh, uh, formerly from Sri Lanka, right? Yeah. And then Kara, formerly from Hawaii, uh, maybe uh, we're both still from, you know, maybe you're still from Sri Lanka and, and Kara's still from Hawaii and I'm still from Vietnam. We're both, right? We just happen to be here, right? Yeah, that's a language that we speak a very unspoken, a very uh, nuanced language that only arises, I think, when we recognize each other and we connect with each other in the context that there are not too many other people here who look like us or who sound like us or who, who have names like ours. And it's that thing about the names, which I want to talk to you yeah. about, because when we were doing the work to prepare for this interview, you talked quite a bit about first your racial consciousness, which you have brought up here now, right. but also about your own name. Can you go right. into that a little bit? I'm happy to. Um, when I, I was born, um, the Vietnamese way of writing our names is family name, middle name, and then, and then given name, right? right? So we write out Do. Swan Vin, and so that's the name that I was grew, that I grew up with. Do is my family name, and Swan. And notice I say Do, right? Mm -hmm. And how it was anglicized and westernized is what it is. Um, unless I force it, Do Swan means Swan is my middle name. It means spring, and then Vin. And then my name is Asperger at the end. There, you really hear it. And if I'm true to myself. When we came into the U.S., we have to we have to rewrite it, right? Now it's Vindo, right. 
when I became, when I went to Seattle U, I decided at that time that I was going to uh, change my name legally and drop the Swan, my middle name, so that registration would be easier. So roll call, when we did roll call, would be easier. So I went down to the King County Courthouse, dropped the Swan, used the name that I was baptized with, my saint's name, St. Joseph. So just appended Joseph. It was appended. We were naturalized, right? So it was really Joseph Vincendo. During pre-college, I went down and dropped Swan, so it became Joseph Vindo. So my legal name is Joseph Vindo. And then when I really thought about it, after I did that legal change, I'm like, what was I thinking? Because if I were to drop, if I were to just only do Joseph Doe, there'd be no color. I mean, people don't know, uh, there'll be no color that people can see because people think Doe is do, right? As yeah. in, I do this. And so I, I, I don't regret that. It was just a hard lesson for me. I had dropped my middle name legally, but in my mind, it's still there. It's the name that my parents and my grandparents gave me. So but I dropped it. And so that brings a little bit of sadness to me. It was my, it was my biggest act of cultural accommodation um, that I did consciously. Um, and so I'm sad about that, you know. Uh, but what I do now is instead of using Joseph Doe, which is my legal, and then V is my middle initial, I tell people, call me by my first name, Vin, and my last name is Doe. The thing that's ironic and humorous and discombobulating is that when I say, when I introduce myself as Vindo, certain people don't know that that's really my first name and my last name, right? And so even my working colleagues would say, hi, Vindo. I say, no, it's, Vin is my first name. Do is my last name. And when you have a name that's non-recognizable to Americans, Americans of all kinds, they don't, there's no signifier. There's no clue for them to go, oh, that's your last name. And my name was Johnson. And they go, oh, hi, Vin. Uh, oh, hi, Mr. Johnson. Yeah. But when your name is unique a non or not something that people are aware of, people are confused and you have to do education. You have to, you know, even within this, even now within, you know, the, the small groups that we have at, um, Radix, you know, I, I think I have to tell people, you know, one uh, once Radix member, you know, said, you know, she wrote by email or, you know, hi, Vindo, you know, and I don't think she knows that, you know, Doe is my last name. So these little small things that people are just not aware of and, um, and, and to correct them is the smallest kind of accommodation in the many acts of accommodation that I think those who were those who are not of the main narrative, you know, the the conquer, those who the conquer the the, the, uh, the colonizers, the colonizers. Thank you, Kira. Yeah. Yeah. Those who speak English well, um, we have to let know these small acts of accommodation and that we do. And my part of my racial consciousness is recognizing, oh my God, that's another piece of accommodation that I do. Mm. And every time when people call me, when I let people call me by Vin, the way they are able to pronounce it, I just let it go. Because I'm like, what kind of, what piece of this do you want to contest? Yeah. Um, um, 
I think that was a really apt term that you used when talking about changing your name, uh, cultural accommodation. And first of all, I'm, I mean, not that it's my fault personally, but as an American who was sort of so used to this, I'm so sad that you felt obligated to change your name to make it easier. Like that's so terrible you were ever made to feel that way because that like it's it's your name, you know? And for for you to feel pressured to change it because ostensibly some some well-meaning Americans were like, oh that's kind of too hard for me to take the five seconds to remember. Like these are the these are exactly the kinds of stories that we want to highlight to you know, and especially from first, second generation immigration still, like there's there's still a lot of that in there. And that's, but that's, I, I like the cultural accommodation term and I'm sorry that we have to use it, but I hope we don't have to anymore so that we can just call you by your name. <laughs> and you know, the truth, Kara, is that this goes on constantly. And, and, and we take those of us who opt for, uh, our family calls it a white sounding name or a white name. In fact, it's not even a white name. It's just, it's just a non, you know, a non-Vietnamese name. I have a brother named Peter. I have a sister named Maria. I have a, another sister named Teresa. They chose to go by the name that they were, the, the name that they were baptized with, the anglicized name, the anglicized version of the saint that they were baptized for. My English is not good today, guys. Uh, <laughs> Your English is... Fine. Like, uh, just don't worry about you're it. You're doing great. Yeah. Right. And so, so, and so, and so I think it's, so in a way we take part in this, right? It's easier for us to not correct it. My sister's name is Jun, T-R-A-N. Can you imagine if Vin is hard? Can you imagine she has to tell people and it's Jun or my other sister's name is Jin, C-H-I-N-H. Um, so, um, my brother's name is Twee, by the way, T-H-E-Y with a, uh, with a little um, question mark above, above the U. So they made it easier on themselves. And, 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 the, that, and what's funny and what, what's interesting about this in my own family, this is not their fight. They're happy to be called Peter, Maria, and Teresa. And even within my own family, it's like, and so it was me that decided that, you know, I wanted to reclaim it. And so it's call it cultural accommodation or call it whatever you will it's 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 a micro practice that that i'm aware of that when you add on to many micro practices it paints a larger picture of you know subscribing to a main narrative and our own and even within bipoc people's own collusion to that main narrative. I call it collusion. My sisters and brothers probably would not call it collusion. They probably, they probably <laughs> call it convenience. You know, or maybe they have an affinity to Peter or Maria Teresa. But um, I felt like I was not, I, I felt like I was never a Joseph. What was I thinking? And then to be called, jo- and when you call Joseph, people invariably go, hey, Joe. And, you know, and then I have to say, okay. <laughs> so. Now I feel like I'm griping. Okay, let's move on to a no, fun no. question. Yeah. Well, you're fine. I, I actually do want to say one more thing really yeah. quickly. And that's the, the 
most English-speaking countries, I mean, the UK, Australia, and the US are all very bad at this, but uh, if we encounter names or words and languages that don't have, that have completely different sound sets from, like, for some reason, we just decide to give up collectively a lot of the time. And then it's really strange because we, like, we're just not willing to make the effort to learn what the aspirated H sounds like in Vietnamese. Like, you know, your name, like when we spell it out with Latin alphabet, it's V-I-N-H. You can't leave out the H or else the meaning probably changes. Or it maybe is a word that doesn't exist in Vietnamese. And it's really disingenuous for Americans to assume that just because the sound doesn't exist in English, it, it doesn't mean that we can just sort of disregard it completely. Right. So that's that's what I wanted to say. So <laughs> I appreciate that, Carol. And, and and thank you for allowing the importance of this. When I feel like it's funny when I feel like I'm talking about this, I feel like I'm nitpicking. And I wonder if people call it get this, you know, uh, the feel the feeling that be that they're nitpicking. When I write down my name, Vin, this there's a man that I do business with professionally. He writes out my name, it's V I H N. So there's a real example of anglicizing it, right? He thinks it's like John. So he put oh, the H in no. front of the N and he's still doing that. And I, you know, and I mentioned it to him very clearly once and very nicely. And he still does it because I don't think he realized he is, ha- he does happen to be a white man, you know, his, his own default, right? Is you know, he knows me as Vietnamese and he still anglicizes my name happens today. Um, so. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. But but now and honestly, Vin, I do not think you're nitpicking. This is your name. This is the name that yeah. as you said, your family gave you. It's the name that you had when you were growing up. I, I don't see it as nitpicky as all at, at all no. to yeah. want no. to reclaim that and then to want other people to be better about your name. That does not seem like it's too much to ask. No. I, thank you. And I think we use it as an example and extrapolate it to what it could mean. I think what it could mean to me is that people don't question the default in which, in which they live, right? If, if John, that's not his name, if John Angus has my name, he doesn't realize that <laughs> it's, it's because you think it's a, it, 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 the, the H is like the H in John. So, um, so I, I don't, that awareness is something I think we could point out to people who listen to this. It's like, uh, it's important to recognize the frame in which you come with that you may not even recognize the framework, right? The, the westernized um, and the English in which you speak, American English. Need I go on? Let's move on. <laughs> we could. Um, I think we probably should. But in the interests of time, uh, it is necessary uh, to keep the wheels turning. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we had talked about when we did our conversation a little bit ago was um, what you want, what you might want the white parishioners of St. Mark's to know yeah. about the overall 
BIPOC experience. And as you said, we're not a monolith. Right. Um, even the three of us here, we're BIPOC people, but we come from very different parts of the world. Right. So not to standardize that, but right. in your experience as a vestry person or as someone who sees St. Mark's as their spiritual home, what would you want the other people in the pews and on the altar and in the leadership to know about the experience that we have? I want them to know that just because that I may represent as a well-speaking, you know, um, English speaker, a person that's happy to get along um, with others. And yet there's a deeper resource, cultural resource that I have that if they are curious about or they've asked about, I would love to share. So I think people of color, especially maybe, and here I am stretching out a little bit, Asian Americans, we, as a group, we try to get along and try to um, not upset the waters. This is a huge generalization that I think you all might, might recognize. So there's a getting along factor that we all have gotten good at. But if you really get to know us and ask us and seek out our opinion, we actually have we may have a divergence of opinion. We may have some experiences that is deeper or an answer that may be deeper than the answer that we give in order to get along. So I came to St. Let me give you an example. I came to St. Mark's probably seven, nine years ago, and I didn't really care to know if there were other people of color around the pews something happened within the tenure of my time at St. Mark's and I recognized, oh my gosh, I've changed. It's important that I see some mirroring of me among the congregation. It's important for me to see, you know, other people who are working class, for me to see people who maybe have other native languages that they are born with in the congregation. And it's important for me to hear them out and, to, and let them speak. And, and because what I was comfortable with seven or nine years ago, Kara and Michael, was, was those who spoke English very well, who got along, who, who, you know, who are articulate and who subscribe in total to the mainstream way of doing business. And something happened within the nine or seven years I, I am at St. Mark's, it just feels time flies by, that realize, oh my gosh, other narratives, oh my God, the language of the colonizers, oh my gosh, um, um, poor people, oh my gosh, um, Mexico, <laughs> oh my gosh, my own English ability and those in my family who are not as English equipped in 
oh my God, my own privilege at sitting on the vestry, my own privilege at, 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 at speaking in a language that people understand and speak in a way that's diplomatic, that people understand. And then when, I, and then when I'm angry, or when other people are angry, or they're not as diplomatic, or when they have an accent, you know, what are their experiences? So it was just, it was just a, a multi-part awareness that, you know, even within the BIPOC community, I had a kind of privilege by, by my position in the vestry. Uh, I was not that involved. Thank you, Michael, for being so gracious. You know, a reader, you know, a vestry member, okay. Uh, um, a stewardship committee member, okay. Uh, but that was a position of privilege and being able to speak English well is a privilege, right? And having no accent is a privilege. So I got, I got where I need to go at a certain point. And then as I grew up, still growing up, understanding how race plays out in this part of the U.S., in the U.S., I realized I was afforded certain opportunities and then I might have not have been afforded other opportunities because of history. And how much do I really know about my own oppression? And, and so it's, um, and then this Asian hate crime uncovering comes along. Um, I call it uncovering because there, there was, I, lis I had listened to a podcast of this man named Julian Saporti, who is a, a folk, I think he's a folk singer. He had a great podcast on NPR. He says that Asian, this Asian, he said this rise in Asian hate crime is not a rise. You look at the history, it's been happening. And I, was, I felt I was like slapped in the face. I'm like, oh my God, my own awareness of this. Uh, I need to get an education myself. He's right, it isn't right. It's an uncovering. Just like Black Lives Matter might have been thing that is percolating now, but in fact, <laughs> it's been burning mm -hmm. um, maybe in conflagration in certain parts, but in seething voting, you know, in other parts of the U.S. Hello, and thank you for listening to our interview with Vin Doe. You can find part two of this interview on the St. Mark's website or wherever you get your podcasts.